I think we have so institutionalized, you know, a, a very aggressive posture towards uh, China that I'm not sure that we could respond uh, if and when uh, China sort of were to change course on these very problematic uh, approaches that I think do hobble uh, international cooperation in response to shared challenges. Can the U.S. and China play nice enough with each other to not ruin the planet in the coming century? In particular, what prospects are there for cooperation around climate and biotech? To discuss, I have on today Scott Moore, Penn's Director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives, and perhaps the nicest person on China Twitter. <laughs> Low bar, but, you know, still counts for something. Uh, Scott uh, is the author of China's Next Act, How Sustainability and Technology Are Reshaping China's Rise and the World's Future. Scott, welcome to China Talk. Thanks so much, Jordan. It's really a pleasure. And I appreciate the, uh, the plug, even, even if it's a low bar uh, on China Twitter. So I want to start in the 1950s and the fight against polio. How did the U.S. and the Soviet Union figure out how to work together to eradicate a really horrific disease? So it's a great question, Jordan, to think about in the context of where we are today between the United States, China, and other countries when it comes to heightened geopolitical rivalry, but also the need to cooperate to some degree on shared global challenges. And as your question points out, we did see examples during the Cold War of when the United States and the Soviet Union were able to undertake some joint action in response to what we now think of as global public good issues, uh, in this case, public health. And what happened specifically um, was that the United States uh, really was the, uh, the site of origin of uh, the polio vaccines. Those were an American invention, so to speak, uh, an American technology, if you want to uh, put it that way, or American developed technology. But the use of them, and specifically the approach that was used to mass uh, inoculation using the polio vaccine was actually developed in the Soviet bloc, specifically Hungary. And so there was uh, some degree of uh, U.S.-Soviet uh, governmental cooperation that buttressed that. But what you also saw is this uh, process of where an American-developed technology was essentially utilized um, by the Soviet bloc and uh, then used to develop an approach uh, or a methodology to be able to deploy it effectively and to achieve uh, something close to, uh, uh, to total eradication of polio. So it was really an example of where you saw the two countries, to some degree, working together to advance a global public good, despite an atmosphere of very uh, high mistrust and geopolitical rivalry, not unlike what we see today between the United States and China. What do you think was special about the polio vaccine, which allowed um, this cooperation to happen even in the first place? Well, you have to keep in mind, and again, this, this is a, um, a, a situation that does have relevance to the present day, but there were some, some important differences. Um, one thing to, to remember about polio is that it was a universal scourge. This was a, a terrible, terrible, debilitating disease that um, disproportionately affects uh, children and for that reason was uh, widely uh, feared uh, you know, across countries. Uh, that, uh, that was a commonality that uh, was, not, was not shaped in any way by, uh, by geopolitics. And so uh, every country, uh, including the United States and the Soviet Union at the time, the Soviet bloc countries as well, 
saw a common need to combat this shared scourge. Yeah, I thought the the sort of got even one level lower lower down into the details. The the story of um, uh, the fact that all the Americans already were vaccinated um, and uh, the Soviet Union offering up Hungary uh, as a test bed for this uh, vaccine. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine something like that with all the stories around, you know, microchips and, uh, and America planning COVID or whatever, uh, being something that would be that there would be enough trust um, to do. Uh, Absolutely agree with that uh, point, Jordan. And it is important to underscore that there there are major differences. Um, You know, there's lots of uh, kind of a whole cottage industry uh, around drawing sort of uh, comparisons between the Cold War uh, and the current tensions that exist, uh, uh, particularly in U.S.-China relations. But there are some important differences, and you alluded to uh, to one uh, one in particular. Though I will point out, um, and this maybe uh, takes us in uh, uh, toward another. Uh, aspect of things that the book covers, but it really wasn't so long ago, uh, about seven years ago, that the United States and China did mount uh, a reasonably successful uh, joint public health uh, uh, effort in response to uh, the 2014-2015 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So I think you're right uh, that we've gotten to a place where uh, it's hard to see that level of trust, uh, and yet we do have examples, even in the relatively recent past, um, of when this type of joint action was possible. Yeah, it, it's really interesting thinking back to Ebola because, like, you have this this sort of strain of U.S.-China competition of, you know, who's going to like do better for the developing world. Which I think, if somehow that is the sort of turns that that ends up being like the quote unquote battlefield it ends up it could end up having really positive ramifications for um for the planet but also you know figuring out how to um you know not turn like the third world battlefield into a cold war era like proxy war type thing and instead uh you know how are we going to solve your healthcare and and infrastructure problems in a in a in a more effective way for your people um dimension would end up being, you know, not the worst timeline for the 21st century to fall into. Uh, uh, Thoughts on that, Scott? Um, You you do speak a fair amount in this book about how, um, you know, there are venues like on, uh, you know, some uh, global health and development topics where you can have cooperate, you you can have um, competition end up leading to kind of like net positive benefits for the planet. Yeah, you hit on a couple of important things uh, there, Jordan. First of all, as you mentioned, I do talk uh, quite a bit in the book about how we can make progress uh, in response to tackling shared global challenges like uh, climate change and public health uh, through competition uh, as well as through uh, cooperation and other kind of modes of of, uh, uh, interaction and engagement. Um, I talk especially about how I think Uh, The idea of economic, geopolitical, even ideological competition uh, can be good for clean uh, technology development. I think it can also potentially be helpful in terms of providing a uh, a practical justification to increase uh, public funding and financing for adaptation to climate change as well as mitigation. But it's also worth uh, noting that I I think this idea of competition uh, is in many ways a second best uh, strategy. Uh, it's probably not what, what you would choose from a blank uh, sheet of paper as the ideal approach to trying to tackle these shared global challenges. It's a reflection 
uh, of realities. Uh, it's a reflection not just of political realities in terms of where we are uh, in the U.S.-China relationship uh, and China's relationship with other uh, major countries, but it's also a reflection uh, of the direction uh, I think that China has taken over the past decade. Um, Scott, uh, Marshal Nye Rongjen, who's he? Nye Rongjen was a uh, significant figure in uh, the People's Liberation Army uh, uh, during the Chinese Civil War uh, period and uh, during the Korean War era was essentially appointed by uh, Mao to serve as kind of a, a national resource mobilization czar. And he really laid the foundation for China's approach to science, technology, and innovation in the decades that followed. Uh, and the approach that he laid out uh, was one that borrowed heavily from uh, the Soviet Union uh, and that had a couple of key elements. One was the idea of uh, leapfrogging, uh, that it was important uh, to equip these socialist uh, economies to leapfrog ahead of their uh, Western um, capitalist peers. Uh, including through uh, development of key industrial uh, processes and technologies. The second uh, aspect, and as that implies, uh, as that sort of priority implies, is a very strong role uh, for the state, um, especially, and here's the third key characteristic, something called the task-oriented approach, which is the idea that the state essentially sets priorities uh, for science, technology, and innovation that then scientists, engineers, researchers are expected uh, to pursue. Uh, often uh, these were set uh, via five-year plans. It's important to underscore that that differs uh, in a key way from the approach typically taken uh, in the West and particularly in the United States, uh, which is much more uh, bottom-up. Uh, there are funding agencies to which individual researchers or sometimes, you know, laboratories, uh, uh, universities apply uh, for funding. And it's typically part of an open call that provides uh, quite a bit of discretion or leeway for uh, the researchers uh, or the institutions or the entities conducting the research uh, to determine the priorities or directions uh, of their research. And that's an important distinction uh, with uh, the task-oriented approach that, that's really baked into the DNA uh, of, uh, of China's yeah. uh, approach to SDI, thanks largely to uh, Marshall yeah. Nia. So um, Marshall Nia, he didn't come up with this by himself. Uh, there was, uh, I've been reading a Stalin and the bomb lately, mm -hmm. uh, thanks to uh, Joseph Tridgian's uh, yes. uh, suggestion, which is a really fun um, deep dive into the, uh, the sort of like early years of science and technology in the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, catch up and overtake. Uh, this is uh, absolutely, you know, a Leninist, uh, you know, it dates back to, um, uh, to sort of like, is it Lenin? Um, or let me read a quote. This is kind okay, of but certainly uh, the kind of model set by by the Soviet state from the twenties onward. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so there's a great line um, from the, from this book saying, talking about um, in the, in the 1930s, how the psychology of catch up and overtake militated against technological innovation on the basis of original Soviet research. Um, This slogan implied that the Soviet Union was following the path that more advanced countries already traveled. And it was always less risky to do something that had already been done abroad than to try out an untested Soviet idea. Um, So proposals from Soviet scientists were like, to ignore be ignored unless they had been validated by foreign experience and so it's really interesting is like you have this tension both in the in the chinese as well as the soviet system where um on the one hand you have this like worshiping of chinese technology and on the other hand you have this you have this strain of like we need to do something totally crazy because we're really far behind. And this is kind of how you get, you know, Lysenkoism, um, uh, uh, and then you get, you know, all of the, um, uh, you know, outrageous stuff that happened in the, in the Mao era when it comes to science and technology where, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, absolutely illogical things were put forward because you had workers which were more red um, who were saying, you know, you should make steel in this way, not that way, Whatever. Yes. Um, and I think that's a really important point to, to underline, uh, Jordan. You're absolutely right. And I would sort of add to that. And, uh, you know, there are sort of two other, um, I think, commonalities between uh, the sort of Chinese and, and, and Soviet experience in, in science, technology, innovation. One is this sense of uh, kind of um, uh, perhaps not quite desperation, but, you know, acting more out of necessity than uh, sort of uh, uh, than uh, in, intention. Um, and I think that's, you know, one uh, characteristic of uh, Nia's approach, uh, which is to say um, that we have to pursue military and civilian priorities, for example, uh, in parallel uh, and in an integrated fashion, because we simply don't have the resources uh, to pursue them uh, independently. Uh, and that, of course, uh, you know, eventually uh, informed what we now think of as uh, uh, civil military fusion, uh, for example. So uh, Lenin argued that it was, quote, necessary to take all the culture that capitalism has left and build socialism out of it, to take all the science, the technology, all the knowledge and art. Without this, we cannot build the life of communist society. Uh, quote ends. He understood that science and technology were necessary for defense and for economic developments. In March 1918, when the Soviet government was forced to sign the punitive uh, Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with Germany, he drew the lesson that, quote, it is necessary to master the highest technology or be crushed. When he began the slogan, quote, communism equals Soviet power plus electrification of the whole country in 1920, he was doing more than just popularizing his plan for electrification. He was also conveying the message that socialism was to be created by technological progress as well as socialist revolution, um, which I think uh, the CCP imbibed uh, whole cloth. Yep, I, I would agree. Um, and, you know, certainly that, you know, this this time period, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of that going on, which was late, later, you know, conveniently denied by by both sides after the Sino-Soviet split. But, yes, uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of cross fertilization here. And as you pointed out, uh, a tremendous amount of uh, of borrowing uh, that went on, uh, including in terms of outlook, you know, organization of the bureaucracy, um, really very substantial uh, cross fertilization. How, if at all, have these themes played out in the context of China's development in biotechnology? So I think biotechnology is a really interesting and perhaps the most important area to look at uh, when it comes to uh, technological competition uh, between the U.S. and China 
um, for a couple of reasons. One, the U.S. has historically, since the end of the the Second World War, uh, roughly, been been really the locus for uh, biotechnology research around the world, and a, a big part of that actually is because of a very large uh, continued investment over time uh, in uh, federal support uh, for uh, uh, biomedical and other uh, forms of biotech research through the National Institutes of Health and, and other mechanisms. But suffice to say, uh, it's long been a priority, uh, and the U.S. has really been the, the kind of overwhelming uh, powerhouse, if you want to sort of think of it that way, uh, in biotechnology. And it's not just in the research, but it's also in uh, the commercialization, uh, the kind of uh, salience of U.S., the U.S. pharmaceutical industry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's really been the powerhouse uh, in the sector. Um, China, on the other hand, uh, and as we, we talked about earlier, uh, China has always uh, really heavily prioritized uh, science, technology, innovation uh, investments. Uh, but historically, China's kind of uh, research and development enterprise uh, was uh, stronger, put more resources in, was generally uh, more kind of uh, better organized uh, in the, the uh, physical uh, sciences than and natural sciences than in the life sciences. Uh, starting uh, uh, in the early 1980s and accelerating pretty consistently since then, uh, Beijing uh, tried to uh, increase investment in the sector, tried to steadily increase the priority given to biotechnology uh, in five-year and other plans to try to remedy that. Um, and the, the main reason for that was that uh, biotechnology, uh, and in particular developments uh, in just the last 15 years or so, uh, have, uh, have catapulted the industry uh, and the sector forward. Uh, and the single biggest probably leap technologically that's, that's important to mention uh, is uh, the, the development of, of CRISPR, which is a tool that allows for uh, fairly easy uh, and straightforward uh, uh, editing of genes uh, and genomes. Uh, and you combine that with uh, big data analytics, uh, the integration of, of artificial intelligence, uh, other things, and we're really kind of poised um, for biotechnology to, uh, to make some very, very significant technological improvements and probably, uh, therefore, to have a really big impact uh, in the business world, uh, in the geopolitical and security world, and pretty much every other uh, aspect of our lives. Um, and so in the book, I do uh, have a pretty large focus on uh, China's role in this increasingly important sector. Sure. So what? let's talk a little bit about the scary parts of biotech. How could uh, these developments kill us all, Scott? So that is something that I, I focus on um, in the book, though. It's, it's worth noting that uh, these developments in, uh, in biotechnology uh, have, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, promise, particularly uh, to, uh, uh, to eradicate uh, diseases and things like that, uh, to improve medicine. But there are some really scary things out there. Um, and I think uh, the reason I, I focus on them in the book is because they're more or less uh, of equal concern to the U.S. Uh, and China uh, and other major countries, and therefore, I think, do create some type of shared interest in developing rules and guardrails uh, uh, around uh, gene editing, synthetic biology, and other advanced uh, forms of biotechnology research. But what those dangers are, uh, there are two in particular that I talk about in the book. Uh, one is the risk of uh, essentially synthetic 
uh, or novel forms of bioterrorism where, uh, you know, malign actors, whether they're terrorist groups or, you know, some other uh, kind of entity uh, set out to do great harm, uh, could, uh, without uh, a huge investment of resources and, and without too much in the way of specialized knowledge, uh, could, uh, through the use of gene editing, uh, create uh, or modify uh, viruses or, or uh, uh, create other dangerous organisms uh, that might enable um, uh, uh, the specific targeting of, uh, you know, of, of particular human populations uh, or otherwise just sort of wreak uh, mass, uh, uh, mass havoc. Uh, the other kind of related and, and probably uh, even more uh, likely danger that I think we have to think of is the risk of um, sloppy or accidental research uh, that is uh, essentially creates a, a dangerous new organism, not, you know, not intentionally, not because the, the, uh, the originator or the inventor was, uh, had some, uh, some evil intention, but just because they were sloppy or, or made a mistake. Uh, and that organism, whether it's a virus or something else, then gets released into the environment and, uh, and causes uh, uh, real damage or, or ecological disruption. Uh, and that is a risk that is increasing rapidly along with uh, the development of, uh, of gene editing as a field and the number of uh, research uh, entities and institutions that are pursuing it. And I think ultimately these risks create uh, a, a real need for uh, international uh, collective action to try to uh, to try to create some guardrails uh, and rules. And there are efforts underway, um, quite a few actually, to do that. Uh, but I think where China comes into the picture is that because of its massive investment and progress really in the biotech sector, uh, none of those efforts are going to be successful uh, without uh, China and without uh, Beijing's buy-in to some extent. So, um, what does the 1973 conference in Alisamar, California, teach us about um, how the U.S. and China could potentially um, find ways to uh, reduce risk uh, when it comes to biotech? Well, so one thing um, that's uh, kind of uh, common to uh, – it's really kind of a common challenge, I think, for uh, both uh, Beijing, Washington, other kind of governments around the world uh, who are interested in – trying to uh, limit some of the, the risks posed by emerging technologies is that the technology uh, is advancing sufficiently quickly that it's really hard for governments and states to, to keep up. Um, and that's, that's more or less as true uh, for China as it is the U.S. or other countries. And for that reason, a lot of the uh, de facto kind of work of creating and, and following safeguards uh, really comes down to individual scientists or researchers or, or laboratories. It's really kind of fundamentally something that um, that uh, the the subnational or kind of sub-state, um, so to speak, uh, sector uh, really is at the cutting edge of. And the reason I mentioned this uh, uh, probably obscure to most people, 1973 uh, Asilomar conference. There were actually two. Um, at a, a place called the Silomar, California, which is gorgeous, by the way, right on the Pacific Ocean, um, is that it involved uh, a group of researchers who came together uh, in the early 70s. These were people uh, working um, uh, in the sort of uh, uh, early uh, stages of uh, research into, uh, uh, into what eventually kind of became uh, the field of gene editing. 
Um, and they were really concerned uh, by the prospect of unintentionally uh, creating potentially uh, 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 dangerous viruses. Uh, and they agreed on a set of uh, protocols and safeguards to guide uh, their research, um, including uh, one of the first mentions of what subsequently has been called, uh, become known rather as the precautionary principle, um, which is something that basically says the more, uh, the more potentially risky uh, a, uh, uh, a research step uh, or research approach might be, uh, the higher the, the bar should be to pursuing it. Um, sounds straightforward, but is, uh, is pretty fundamental uh, to uh, research safety, research security, research ethics uh, around the world. Um, and that was something that really kind of came out of uh, or, or was first really popularized with a set of, uh, of, of talks and, uh, uh, and uh, dialogues, mostly between scientists. The key thing to note about uh, the Asilomar conferences, though, is that they were almost entirely uh, dominated by representatives from the U.S. and a couple of Western European countries. The second one included, uh, if I recall correctly, one or two Japanese representatives, but very few uh, non-Western uh, uh, representatives at all. And that really reflected uh, the fact that at the time, the overwhelming majority of biotechnology research was, was concentrated um, in the advanced industrial uh, countries. Uh, if you were to, I think it's a promising model uh, to follow, but now you would have to uh, include a much broader swath of countries, uh, including China. Um, but I think it's nonetheless uh, a, a powerful example uh, of how uh, scientists and researchers can uh, themselves kind of start, jumpstart uh, the development and evolution of safeguards to try to redu reduce some of the risks associated with these very disruptive uh, emerging technologies. Yeah. So, Scott, I guess your theory of the case is that, like, if enough global scientists can get together and agree on some principles, then there will be sort of like norms created in the ether, which will then sort of end up and end up flowing up until how uh, into, uh, you know, what uh, scientists around the world. I mean, yes, but uh, it's not quite as uh, first of all, I wouldn't say I'm quite as uh, um, uh, airily optimistic uh, as that. Um, I would say that uh, I think this that that kind of approach, the sort of uh, bottom up scientist led approach, uh, I think it's uh, it's practical. It's feasible for now um, as a first step, but it's no replacement for some type of international agreement, ulti which ultimately is what I think uh, will be required. Uh, and it is, again, I think, a second best uh, to some type of intergovernmental cooperation between the U.S., China, other countries. Um, I just think, unfortunately, that's that's a, as a practical matter, a non-starter right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess my concern is that you know, with stuff like like biotech and advanced AI, like the like the the upside payoff of um, you know maybe pushing the precautionary principle a little further than you would um, you would you would in a vacuum is going to be tempting enough from a sort of commercial as well as like national power perspective that it will be very hard to draw um, kind of lines in the sand uh, around these types of emerging technologies in the way that the um, uh, uh, the U.S. and Soviet Union um, ultimately successfully did when it came to the use of um, of, of of nuclear weapons. But um, I hope. I'm well, I but I, I, I mean, I, I hope you are, too, Jordan, but I also don't disagree. I think my message here, though, is this is something we have to make a start on. And I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't see a lot of 
near-term potential. Um, but the risks are out there. They're real. Um, and they're coming down the pike fast uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of really becoming things that, that we need to, to think very seriously about. Um, and so for that reason, we have to make a start, even if it's you know, sort of a, a, a suboptimal, um, perhaps unlikely to succeed uh, approach. We, we have to start somewhere. So, so what gets us out of this dynamic? Is it the aliens invading, she dying? Um, I don't know. Bernie Sanders is president. Like what, what, like how do, uh, do, do you have any sort of not like greater than like 3% probability futures, which end up, um, uh, leaving the world in a better place um, from a U.S.-China perspective, at least, to address these sorts of challenges? Um, I would say it's maybe more of like a 10%, uh, you know, kind of uh, scenario. Um, but, you know, I, I do have to kind of start by saying um, I, I don't think there's much much medium-term hope of significant improvement in U.S.-China relations. And that's a lot of the reason why I think we just have to think differently about how to uh, try to tackle shared global challenges, not just through, you know, this idea of, oh, you know, we have to find ways to cooperate and wall, you know, wall off issues like climate change. That's that's not realistic. Um, it, it has never been the way that these issues get tackled. Um, that is an example we can take from the Cold War. Uh, and it's just time to think, uh, think differently. We can't assume that there's going to be some magical uh, improvement in uh, U.S.-China bilateral uh, relations. That said, you know, one of the things I end the book uh, by talking a little bit about is that I, I worry that um, we are, uh, particularly in the United States, but to a large degree, uh, other kind of allied and aligned countries, you know, Germany comes to mind, really um, hardening China policy to the extent that uh, if China were to change direction, and I emphasize I have no near to medium term uh, belief that that will happen. But if it does, I don't think we could respond. Uh, I think we have so institutionalized, you know, a, a very aggressive posture towards uh, China that I'm not sure that we could respond uh, if and when uh, China sort of were to change course on these very problematic uh, approaches that I think do hobble uh, international cooperation in response to shared challenges. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't put the percentage uh, much higher uh, than you would, uh, but uh, I think there's a chance. And I think what I would, uh, you know, kind of reflect on uh, is that I think our, uh, our approach has been really to, um, to institutionalize uh, this very, very aggressive uh, posture and and eliminate a lot of the desirable flexibility uh, that that w should otherwise be built into that. And let me make one other related point: whether or not you know China kind of changes or um, uh, you know sort of otherwise uh, 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 modifies uh, certain you know problematic kind of political stances. One thing that we are seeing uh, is uh, uh, what appears to be a pretty uh, dramatic and sustained uh, change in China's uh, uh, inputs into global economic growth. Uh, and in fact, the kind of signs are adding up uh, that we're likely to see something close to a prolonged uh, economic stagnation um, or some form of kind of stasis for the Chinese economy. Um, there are a lot of implications that would flow from that. Uh, and I think they do call into question 
you know, some of the assumptions uh, uh, around uh, China, you know, China's rise um, that inform a lot of a lot of current policy across the West. Uh, Scott, I want to change tax a little bit to close. Um, you uh, are involved with one of America's largest like China research endeavors in all the stuff that uh, Penn University does from a, from a China studies context. I've, um, uh, I, I've written a long piece for um, the EA forum and I've been reading a lot about, uh, uh, you know, what China studies needs to do and become and grow and evolve into over in the coming decades. Um, thinking about, uh, you know, the, the sort of, uh, um, you know, what, what happened for Russia studies in particular in the, um, uh, in the 50s, 60s and 70s and area studies more generally. Yeah. Cold War. Uh, I'm curious, Scott, um, your, you know, broad take on where China research is today and where it needs to be for us to have the best chance of not um, completely ruining the planet in, um, or, 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 you know, you know, frame it however you want, ruining the planet, you know, improving American competitiveness. So like how much, how much more juice is there left to be squeezed from a China studies angle, regardless of what you want to do with that knowledge? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Jordan, and, and really a, a great one to sort of, uh, maybe end on in terms of, uh, in terms of reflection. Um, so I think, you know, American, uh, sort of Chinese studies has always been, uh, I think relatively, uh, strong and certainly numerous compared to China studies in other countries. Um, and I think, uh, by and large, uh, does continue to have a lot of strengths, uh, but with a, a couple really, uh, key challenges and you, you, uh, already identified a couple of them. One is uh, something that's been occurring to area studies, um, regional studies across the board for some time, which has been declining enrollments, um, particularly in language courses. Um, and that is something that I think uh, we definitely need to, uh, uh, need to find ways to, uh, to counter, um, probably through uh, increased investment. Uh, in language training and just in uh, the kind of uh, essentially rewards and incentives that we're creating uh, for people to be uh, really adept uh, at uh, particularly uh, 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 reading uh, in, uh, in Chinese. Um, I think the other uh, aspect that you hinted at, which is more, you know, graduate students, folks who are already in the field, just how they're able to conduct their work. Um, and that's something that has uh, been of great concern uh, lately, not only uh, in light of the, the difficulties in physically traveling to China, but concerns about increasing uh, difficulty in accessing archives, uh, conducting the types of fieldwork interviews and things like that, that uh, uh, would have been um, pretty, pretty normal for researchers uh, five or so, five plus years ago. Um, and that is something I think we'll we'll just have to uh, we'll just have to see what the post-pandemic uh, reality looks like. Uh, I do think uh, there would be room for uh, the U.S. government, in uh, conjunction with its partners and allies, to make that an issue uh, in bilateral uh, relations. Um, I don't know what the prospect of success would be, but it is fundamentally not in China's interest if. Uh, those who are uh, the source of expertise on China uh, in foreign countries are not able to uh, meaningfully engage uh, with China. Um, that's you know that should be uh, something that's that's of concern to 
uh, Beijing. The other kind of thing that, uh, as you probably uh, have have heard, people are talking a lot more about how you make use of uh, you know digital humanities uh, sources that have been uh, digitally archived and therefore are accessible, um, you know, outside China, um, as well as the use of uh, satellites, remote sensing, uh, other kind of remote technologies, so to speak, uh, to conduct uh, research. And I think in the short term, uh, that will be uh, the direction that a lot of folks, particularly in the social sciences, uh, take with respect to China studies. But the long-term implications are, are really concerning if we don't see uh, some type of uh, uh, of improvement in uh, in not just you know kind of U.S.-China governmental relations, but U.S.-China academic uh, relations, and I think to a large extent that's mirrored as well. Oh, 
到我的王位，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎，哎哎